Hi, welcome to Worthington Stories. I'm your host, Cynthia Bent Findlay, and I'm excited today to share a special discussion this episode that explores a part of our history that reverberates today and opens some windows on how we as a community are moving into tomorrow together. I'm talking about an exhibit and a history project called Undesign the Red Line that a collection of community members worked to bring to the old Worthington Library. I'd heard a little bit about redlining, a practice in which banks and developers drew maps creating areas effectively making it near impossible to get mortgages in low-income and racially integrated areas in the early 20th century in the United States. But I never really thought about it around my own city until I went to see this exhibit at the Old Worthington Library. Seeing these maps where different people were systematically disincluded from becoming homeowners is especially powerful when you recognize your own street on it today. I was especially intrigued when I heard some folks from our own library and school system have also been researching the history of racial segregation here in central Ohio, right down to local neighborhoods within Worthington and our school district, and added our own history to that exhibit. So I talked to Glennon Sweeney, Senior Research Associate at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at The Ohio State University, and she gathered together a few others. Derek Birch, a teacher who runs Erase the Space, an amazing program for young people here in central Ohio. Roseanne Nagel, a Linworth Experiential Program teacher, and two Worthington High Schoolers, Elijah Krause and Ellie Keener. We sat down, recorder running, and they taught me some stuff. I learned that mortgages as we know them didn't really exist until after the Great Depression. I learned why some of my kids' friends who go to Thomas Worthington don't actually live in Worthington, but in the city of Columbus. That whole Worthington Schools Columbus Taxes thing and what that has to do with segregation. I learned that there are some great people working out there in central Ohio trying to bring together young people of various ethnic and racial identities and socioeconomic groups and really give them the keys to their own communities in positive and innovative ways. So... I hope you'll enjoy our discussion, and I hope that you'll go check out their work at the Old Worthington Library and maybe attend one of the special events in early October, which Glennon will tell you about at the end of the episode, and which you can check out on our website too, worthingtonstories.com. Now, on to the discussion. So I'm sitting with a group of fine folks who have worked on an exhibit called Undesign the Red Line that is appearing at the Old Worthington Library through the end of October that I think a lot of Worthingtonians probably don't know much about and we're going to get to hear how that how the exhibit came to be. Some of the research that's gone into the exhibit and has been going on behind the scenes uh, all year about um, history notes around Worthington, how would you say it? What would the, the research that's been going on around Worthington be about? How would I synopsize Honest that? local history research. Honest local history research that's been going on around Worthington for the past, I don't know, year or so? I'm going to ask everyone to introduce ourselves, um, starting to my right with Glennon. Hi, I'm Glennon Sweeney. Um, Lived in Worthington, uh, Greater Worthington, most of my life. Uh, serve on the Community Relations Commission, um, and I also uh, work with Erase the Space and serve on the board of Erase the Space. What's Erase the Space? Um, you have to ask Derek about that. Derek, <laughs> let's go to you next. Derek. Okay, uh, I'm Derek Birch. I, um, I guess I was like the project manager. 
yeah. of this. Uh, and I'm a high school English teacher, and I do that in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I run Erase the Space, which is a nonprofit. Uh, we're, we focus on um, facilitating classroom learning exchanges across classrooms in Central Ohio, so across districts, um, specifically districts where uh, students are not likely to meet each other so that they have that opportunity to not only like exchange narratives, but to learn together and then collaboratively reimagine the world together. Um, and I met Glennon through just being obsessed with Kerwin, uh, the Kerwin Institute's maps. Um, and since then, we've really started to figure out like what uh, our intersection is. We work a lot together, and it's the mm -hmm. intersection of land use and education, uh, which is a lot of what our research was um, as we dove into this project with students. So, um, so you're erasing the space between young people across the Central Ohio region. That is exactly what we're doing. Excellent. Yes. Okay, cool. And what's the Kerwin Institute? Now, the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity is a research institute at The Ohio State University. And what do you research? Um, my research kind of lies at the intersection of land use and development policy and metropolitan segregation, and I've got a particular interest in the role that suburbs have played in creating and maintaining segregation over time. Aha! Okay. Thank you very much. And we're also sitting with Roseanne Nagel. Yes. So, hi, I'm Roseanne Nagel. I am a social studies teacher here in Worthington. I'm also a almost lifelong resident of Worthington. And I teach uh, social studies at Linworth, the experiential learning program in Worthington. Uh, previous to this, I taught at Worthington Kilbourne High School. And just a note, I'm on the board of the Historical Society, actually, as well. Of the Worthington Historical yes. Society. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Oh. And we also have two folks who are the taught. <laughs> I guess you could say, who have been learning how to be teachers, or at least researchers, is that right? Yeah. Um, I'm Ellie Keener. I'm an 11th grader at Linworth, and I was a student researcher on this. Um, I'm Elijah Krauss. I'm a 12th grader, and I was a student researcher on this. I go to Worthington Kilbourne High School. Okay, excellent. So this, uh, let's talk about what is Undesigned the Red Line? Who wants to start... Well, Undesign the Red Line is actually a national project, Okay. Um, where this is kind of a traveling exhibit that kind of goes from city to city. The YWCA brought it to Central Ohio, and so when it comes to a region, they bring together like a working group of people um, to kind of make the Central Ohio, the, re the local panels, which would be Columbus-focused in this case. Um, and so... After the exhibit, it was used uh, in the YWCA's activist and, what is it, agitators, mm -hmm. their, their big fundraising event last year, mm -hmm. um, and kind of was their main focus of the past year. Um, and now it's on tour, essentially, in central Ohio. So it's going from suburb to suburb in different places, even businesses, I think, can host it. Anyone can bring it to their community or organization. Um, and so I, I ran into the past director of um, the YWCA at an event for Undesigned the Red Line, and she said she wanted to bring it to suburbs, so I, um, I'm on the Community Relations Commission in Worthington, so I went to the CRC and said, hey, we should, we should bring this in, what do you guys think? And we brought together organizations like the Historical Society and Library um, to build a coalition to raise the money and um, bring this event in um, and then I don't know whose idea it was Derek but we were talking about it and we thought it'd be cool um, to make it relevant 
to a community like Worthington. Mm-hmm. Probably your idea. Well, what? <laughs> let's let's pause one second. What what is a redline? What are we talking about? What's it oh. about? Oh, okay. Um, so redlining was a federal policy. It was actually part of the New Deal. It was passed in 1933 in the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act. And it's an it was an official program. It was a federal policy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so what it was is it was actually so redlining maps are maps that take uh, they were made in every single metropolitan area with forty thousand or more people, mm-hmm. um, throughout the thirties and maybe the early forties, but definitely through the mid to late thirties. And essentially, what they were is they were maps of risk. They were risk maps. They were called residential security maps. And so what had happened is in the aftermath of the Great Depression, um, you know, we all know about the stock market crash, but what a lot of people don't realize is that there were issues with housing as well in the aftermath of this. And part of that was just because housing was super inaccessible. It was really, you know, mortgages were very different. They were private. They were not federally insured. And, and there was a term they were called like balloon mortgages often. And so you had these like 50% down payments, which is a very large down payment for, for a home. And then you had a very short mortgage life. And generally you're not even paying on the principal during the life of that mortgage. You're paying on the interest. And so that that's why they call it a balloon because then at the end that other 50% is due because you're not. And so many people weren't able to, you know, they'd roll these over into a second mortgage and, and you know, people really struggled to pay off homes, and so home ownership was relatively exclusive. They were, it was more exclusive people. Um, sometimes the same people who were buying stocks. So you see where I'm going with this. And so when they stop, when the market crashed, those same people stopped paying mortgages. Banks went under, and and kind of this giant, you know, fiscal crisis that we had that, uh, that created the depression. And in the aftermath of this, the federal government had already made the decision they wanted to build a nation of homeowners. They, they firmly believed that homeowners made better citizens, essentially. And to build a nation of homeowners, they needed to make homeownership accessible. And they really wanted to build a middle class through homeownership. And so in order to do that, they decided to create federal mortgage insurance and create a more accessible mortgage where that was gonna have a longer life, a lower down payment, and you'd be paying, you know, your last payment would be your last payment because you're paying on the principal and the interest, the mortgage that we have today. And so what these maps were is these maps actually, and it's interesting because these aren't even the maps that were most influential in terms of being used for a long time. These maps, but they're the ones we have, all right? These maps were used to determine who that was in these old mortgages were safe to bring into new mortgages. All right, and so, so they were. This was some very pointed economic tinkering. This was not. Uh, oh, look at this new mortgage product! How cool is that? We could do this. This was some very. This was engineering. In the way that it played out, yes. I mean, the idea of a risk map, right? Isn't. Oh, I'm turn it on the printer. Did you lean back on it? Is that what happened? I am so sorry. No, that's Oops, at this point, we had to do a minor pause and reset as Elijah had accidentally leaned into the copier sitting behind him. We were all kind of smooshed into the head office at Linworth School. It happens. So what happened is, in every metropolitan area where they were doing this, they hired local assessors. And they were usually people very familiar with the real estate market, so often realtors or developers. And frankly, early suburban developers and realtors were the same people a lot of times. they hired these people, and you have to understand the other things that were going on at this time, too, because they all really worked together. There was, you know, the first quarter 
of the 20th century is where we saw the profession of real estate become what it is today. They, the real estate professionalized during this time. And what happened is real estate, as, as this happened, the industry realized that segregation was profitable. Okay, and, and so they essentially worked to create segregation through private agreements and property deeds. And these are called restrictive covenants, and they were racially restrictive covenants that they were writing in in these planned suburban communities. And they worked hard to make sure, you know, they even wrote into their codes of ethics for local real estate boards that you cannot sell property in white, you can't essentially integrate neighborhoods. You can't sell property in white neighborhoods to non-white people. All right, and so they really enforced this, and it created two housing markets, which was very profitable for them. One that was small and constrained, and this was for people who were considered non-white. All right, and so then you have a situation, if we're thinking about economics, right, where you have a lot of demand and a little bit of supply, and you don't even have good supply. The quality is going down because these areas, people can't own property here unless you're paying with cash over time. So these things are connected, as I said, right? So it creates two, and then another big one that's competitive for white people, essentially. Mm -hmm. And they make money off of both. Mm -hmm. And then there are realtors who are not official realtors, but they're still in real estate, or real estate speculators who profit off of integrating neighborhoods and scaring white people out. Because there's they've created, and what the realtors did, these early realtors, is they started this lie that was adopted into New Deal policy. And the lie was the mixing of racial and social classes harms property values. They had no evidence for that. We still don't have evidence for that. So, you know, they had no evidence for that then. And they start this lie. And so they start, and it's the most prolific lie. You talk to people today, people are scared about development because they think if you build affordable housing, their property values will go down. And they associate density with poverty because of those two real estate markets. One was small and constrained. Mm -hmm. And it was full of people who were discriminated against in terms of access to jobs. Mm -hmm. weren't getting paid what they were worth and were unable to build wealth through the number one wealth building mechanism in the United States of America, which is property ownership. Because they, that, And they that were disenfranchised from it through redlining. And so what happened is you have this 1933 Homeowners Loan Corporation Act. And so we're going to figure out who gets to go on these new mortgages. We're going to hire these local realtors and developers. That's who they hire for it, right? And so what ends up happening is those people were already profiting off of segregation, and so they start grading neighborhoods for risk, and they're given forms to fill out. And the forms are about the built environment, largely. Are these homes blighted? Are these homes kept up? Then there's a section for notes. And in the notes section, they write about not the homes and the infrastructure in the neighborhood and what's near it, like, you know, it's near a park or it's near industry. They write about the people. Infiltration of this group, that group, people who are African-American, are listed in this part of the country a lot. Eastern Europeans are listed in this part of the country a lot. Because who was white, by the way, race is a social construct, right? So who was white evolved and changed over time? And it, you know, in the 1930s, Eastern Europeans were largely not considered white. Southern Europeans were largely not considered white. And Catholics in general, and Jews in general, were not considered white. And so even Irish people were not considered white in a lot of parts of the country. <clears throat> so, that, so I saw some of that when I went to visit the exhibit, mm -hmm. the Undesigned the Red Line exhibit. You, they're, they're laid out are some of these notes, mm -hmm. some of these um, actual documents with these words written on them. Is, yes. Is that, that's what we're looking at. Yes, and unfortunately we don't have the notes from Central Ohio.
We don't. They've been lost to history. So we don't know, you know, but we know from other cities and we know from looking at demographics and the history of our community that the neighborhoods who were given poor grades. And so neighborhoods were graded. You get, you, there are four grades you can get, A, B, C, or D. Mm-hmm. These grades correspond with colors, green, blue, yellow, and red, respectively. But they also correspond with a number. And that number is the percentage of the value of that home that would be eligible for the new mortgage. So essentially, that number determined the down payment that neighborhood was eligible for. A-grade neighborhoods, green neighborhoods. In Central Ohio and in most of the country, it seems like green neighborhoods were areas where they were platting, building entire subdivisions with racial restrictions when they did this. All right, so they were probably largely a little bit newer. And we see that in Central Ohio, Mm -hmm. in that Grandview Heights and Worthington Mm -hmm. were not graded A. They were not. Because they were older. They were built and platted before we were using racial restrictions in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. All right? Upper Arlington, Bexley are graded A. They were cornfields at that point. No, they were just recently developed Okay. at that point as restricted, racially restricted subdivision and neighborhoods and, and, and municipalities. So those A communities were eligible for 80% of the value of their home in a federally insured mortgage. That's where we get the 20%. This is the origin of the mortgage we know today, essentially. They had a 20% down payment, which is doable. B grade, and these neighborhoods were all restricted. B neighborhoods were white neighborhoods. Often in Central Ohio, they just didn't have restrictions. A lot of times they were a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they weren't as developed yet, so they just didn't have areas with racial restrictions. But they were, you know, essentially good, just not great neighborhoods. Still good is what these were. They were eligible for like 65% of the value of their home in an insured mortgage. Glennon, yeah. before we go on, would it be a good time to note a few of the neighborhoods that were new neighborhoods after you know the Second World War that did end up with some of those racial covenants? Like they got annexed into Worthington? In, within the Worthington. Yeah, there yeah, were neighborhoods be. in Worthington. Anything built, so this is the thing, right? Like after this policy, Mm-hmm. So actually, let me do. Let me go yeah. through this and then do that. So like, you have like the B grade neighborhoods, C grade neighborhoods were neighborhoods often with Eastern Europeans. They were often neighborhoods where they would say infiltration, an undesirable group has started to move in. Often they were also near industry, so sometimes proximity mattered mm-hmm. in these census. Fifteen um, percent of the value of their home, so they were very close to being cut out of the mortgage market. You got an eighty-five percent down payment. You, you know, you're my friend now. I'm gonna tell you that because you're personally wealthy, right? Um, D-grade neighborhoods were where people who were considered non-white lived. And it did not matter the quality of these neighborhoods. Take King Lincoln, for example. Right? King Lincoln was our Bronzeville. It was our, our Black Wall Street, essentially, in Central big, Ohio. Big, fancy homes over there. Huge really homes. Beautiful. where And it was a mixed community. It was pre- predominantly black and Jewish. And there were, you know, mansions where black and Jewish doctors and lawyers and business owners lived. Now, it was mixed income also. There were alleys where low-income people lived, Mm -hmm. but it was predominantly black and Jewish, so it was redlined. All right, and so this was one of the primary ways. There's a bunch of wealth built by African Americans in the aftermath of the Civil War, right? And then there were all these attacks on it. New Deal policy is but one way we attack this wealth. Direct violence, right, like Tulsa, Mm -hmm. is another way we attack that wealth. But wealth is, was a huge threat, and property ownership is how we build wealth in this country. Now, the year after the Homeowners Loan Corporation passed, the Federal Housing Administration was created. The FHA continued the practice of redlining. The, the FHA redlining was much more prolific and lasted much longer. The FHA, however, was smart and destroyed their maps. 
That's why we use the Homeowners Loan Corporation maps huh. to answer that original question you had. It's answering something you asked earlier, sorry. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so then, then the FHA, because it was influenced by these realtors, right? Because the FHA, the realtors, these early realtors actually viewed the FHA as their department, the federal government. So remember how I told you in their codes of ethics, they prohibited selling homes in white neighborhoods to people of color? Well, they got that written into the Federal Housing Administration's underwriting manual, where it prohibited. It said, and it, it literally said, the mixing of social and racial classes harms property values in the underwriting manual. And so these are ways that the federal government intentionally segregated America and not only segregated America, but intentionally disenfranchised entire groups of people based on their identity from the largest wealth building structure this country has, which is property ownership. What? Also, well, we're giving away homes essentially through New Deal policies to white families. And people wonder why some people call for reparations. No, it's just happening. One other thing the FHA did, not only did they say that the mixing of racial and social classes harms property values, they required racial restrictions in property deeds if developers wanted access to federal mortgage insurance. So you could not integrate neighborhoods if you wanted federally insured mortgages for the people living there. It was prohibited which is really key and important in understanding the wealth impacts it. Well, I, I wanted to ask, I, was Central Ohio segregated or desegregated or not segregated before all of this uh, evolution started to happen? And, and what so do we Central know about Ohio Worthington? had a very okay. small black population until around the mid-1920s. Okay. Um, and so the size of the population does matter. And there actually was, there were black families and households living in Worthington, like I think around the founding of Worthington. Mm -hmm. there, um, was, there was one, uh, he was like a sheriff or something, and he had like a big burial, I think. So, you know, there were black families living mm -hmm. in Worthington. And according to my understanding of the oral histories that have been done by the Historical Society... You know, it wasn't until the 20s that really black families started to feel actual discrimination in Worthington. And that was around the time when there were new neighborhoods being planted, like Colonial Hills, that was started to build, and then the Depression hit, and so there was a pause, and then they built the rest. But they were planted with racial restrictions. And it was a time of growth in Central Ohio, and it was also a time of, it was during the Great Migration. And so Central Ohio, in terms of the Great Migration, we had a real big, we had a bigger influx in that early stage of the Great Migration because um, uh, we did some manufacturing for World War One, um, And so, you know, and, and you can actually see that reflected in a lot of east side neighborhoods of Columbus. Um, American Edition, Hanford Village, um, historically black neighborhoods, they became majority black by 1925. That's when they, they shifted over. And so, you know, it, by that point, the game was already being played. There was already intentional steering and segregation was being baked in through the practice of real estate. Mm -hmm. um, but prior to that, you know, in Worthington, I don't think there was a, a whole lot of segregation. 
I think the other interesting thing to think about the Morse edition is that is the part of Worthington that was graded yellow. Yellow. And that was a number uh, three, was, was that? Yes, was that was. So they were eligible for 15% of the okay. mortgage being insured. They would have had to put 85%. Or down. they'd have to get a private loan or a contract sale, which is much riskier and, and not as safe and higher interest rates. Worthington's reputation at that point, to my understanding, was that Worthington was rather liberal and more on the abolitionist side. Okay. There were, um, you know, if you even watch like the the PBS Columbus neighborhoods on Worthington, they tell some stories about how, you know, the town banded together to trick some, you know, slave catchers <laughs> to send them the wrong way and protected the, the runaways and that there were, you know, a number of families uh, involved in the Underground Railroad. And there was also an African-American, you know, kind of hub uh, in the Flint area um, in, in Worthington historically. And then actually in the 50s, you know, kind of a suburban development for African-Americans because it was hard to build and get land mm-hmm. back then that was that was created by a black couple. So I would say Worthington actually had a pretty good reputation. Um, and preserving land for them at that time would probably have been the way that people would have thought about doing it. And, you know, African-Americans were living. You know, at one point there were African-American families renting the Orange Johnson house. You know, so they lived throughout Worthington, is my understanding. I mean, Kate would be the expert on that, but okay. that, that's that's my understanding, and I think, yeah. So, Kate Lalone and others at the Worthington Historical Society and Meredith Southard, a local history librarian for Worthington Libraries, dug into mapping African-American residents throughout our history and found that African-Americans, mostly emancipated slaves, did settle throughout Worthington, certainly by the 1820s. Records exist of families owning homes and businesses throughout what we call Old Worthington now, and also farms farther to the north and east. There were several black barbers who had businesses along High Street, and some, Lalone says, petitioned city council for street paving, meaning he was a person of respected standing in town. A Methodist minister named Uriah Heath developed a plot of land that came to be known as the Morris Edition, and that was the first development annexed into Worthington. And it said he created this development particularly to reserve land for emancipated slaves and retired Methodist ministers in the 1850s. That's a section of housing bordered on the north by the current East Dublin Granville Road, on the west by the current Morning Street, on the south by South Street, and on the east by Andover, although those street names have been changed over time. St. John's AME Church was also founded in the area by 1897 by five African-American locals looking to form a black congregation. And, of course, many of these black residents and other Worthingtonians were somewhat well-known abolitionists and conductors on the Underground Railroad, helping ferry escapees from southern slavery up north. And one of the things that, maybe turn to students, one of the things that you discovered is that Worthington schools, for example, has never had any history of segregation. Any? No. I think one of the big things that we learned... Is that Worthington's history with like racial restrictions and issues is not spotless, but in terms of like our actual history and what we're trying to do to repair it, like we're pretty, we're pretty progressive, and we're I think ahead of a lot of or a few of the other suburbs in Central Ohio in terms of what we're willing to address. So let's let's take a second to talk about how you came to do research and what what this has meant to 
the uh, the what, what are we calling? Is this a separate project that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so you've been you've been working with students to erase the space between them. We right? erase the space. Partnered with Kerwin for a lot of things. Okay. Um, we do a lot. Of, like our our teachers are onboarded with a very much of what Glennon is talking about, so mm-hmm. that we understand the economic and social and political uh, decisions that created the inequality in schools that we see. Mm-hmm. And we want our teachers to know that. We mm-hmm. want our teachers to know that like good schools and bad schools were uh, you know, a, a result of uh, policy decisions rather than the people who inhabit them or like attend them. And so local history has been a huge part of what we do um, when we ask students to engage because we also think that it allows for discovery um, rather than for someone to kind of like teach from on high and tell somebody what you should think and, and this is what happened. But if you're just investigating local history, you come across, across these things because they're there. And so as Glennon and Kerwin started to rethink their opportunity mapping and got a very large grant to do that in conjunction with investigating local history and creating a toolkit for communities to do that, at the same time, the Undesigned the Redline event is, you know, coming to these suburbs. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, maybe we'll do this like separate project in the summer that can kickstart this larger um, research project that we're doing and toolkit that we're trying to build. And if we can get this grant, maybe we can pay students to do this. Mm-hmm. It's like a summer job. We can pay teachers to support and um, essentially to teach them research methods and then meet with them once a week and, and help like unlock some doors that maybe uh, are stuck or you just, you know, they can't figure out where to go next. We have a support system of Kate at the Historical Society, Meredith at the library, Glennon is... Uh, Meredith? Um, Southerd. Is a Worthington librarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's their history librarian. That's right. Yes. Um, Glennon's working on this as an independent contractor who knows urban planning. I'm a, a teacher who does, he works with lots of different students at this point with the Race to Space. And then we had Roseanne and, and Ian Sample from Lindworth that were able to, I don't know, be supportive with me because then I wouldn't have to be like the only teacher involved in this. They also, we, we met with them at Lindworth. We thought, we said, here's what we're thinking about doing. Met with, a, had a lot of conversations with the district. Got Westerville on board too. So there's two communities that are doing this. And then we got some, some students to sign up. We got some students to say yes. And Elijah actually ran into Glennon at an event and, and, and Glennon was like, hey, you got to hear about this thing. Um, and so it was just interesting how everybody came together. And then, you know, we did some training. We did, Glennon very much went through like this long history of like things you need to know if you're going to do this research. And after that, they got to pick the things that they wanted to kind of like the threads they wanted to follow. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're just turning over stones and seeing what's under there. And if it's nothing, then we move on to the next one. And I don't know, I thought that for me as a teacher... The research process here was so much more authentic than like a two-week research paper where you're just like pulling sources together and then like turning oh, yeah. it in, right? Did you guys learn, so you guys got to learn actual how to do historic or, or um, um, I guess, sociology research? Is that what you, you learned? How to do this I stuff? Historical and social You did stuff. a lot of investigation yeah. into like local history things. Mm-hmm. Like, there were times when me and the person that was working on the same topic as me and Glennon would go down to, um, am I allowed to name names? Of which was, which, in, which yeah. was what? What were you working on? So, we were working on analyzing feeder patterns in the Worthington School District. 
and seeing how they've changed or evolved over time mm -hmm. because there's kind of a disparity between the concentrations of non-white students in the high school level and even in the elementary school level. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at um, school board record meetings from like, gosh, how far back did they go? I mean, we were looking as far back as they go. We focused a lot of it, though, um, during periods of growth that the community. That so the what are we talking about? The, the, the district. So there's the, all these there's these like books down mm -hmm. at the Worthington Education Center mm -hmm. that are just like these giant notebooks that have records of everything that's ever been talked about wow. at a school board meeting. When did they start keeping those records? Are we talking about like the, the, the 1800s, minutes. the 1920s? Like definitely 1920s. Yeah. It was definitely yeah. like, okay. like there was stuff, there was like you could you could smell the, um, the kind of age of the paper. <laughs> but, um, smell the history. Yeah, you could. You could smell the history. And so then they had, they would have just like a little brief kind of mentions of what was discussed, what the board members decided, and things that were brought to the board. So often mentions of like building a new building were mentioned or during particular parts of growth. I think we used help from... Um, I know Derek helped with a list, but then I think Kate from the Historical Society also set me up with a book that had like all the information on like the days and the years and the founding of each individual school. So when a new school is built, obviously that's going to impact how the feeder patterns work because if you have a new high school, then the students aren't going to come from nowhere. So you have right. to figure out what elementary schools go to what middle schools and then what middle schools go to what elementary schools. Even as far back as the 20s, 30s. Gotcha. Okay, that's very cool. So what were you finding? Um, I'd say... Are you not done? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not done. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. Because I think what one of the things that you found that was like pretty key, and you'll see on the exhibit... Mm -hmm. um, at the bottom is a quote from someone in the then called Human Relations Commission, um, essentially saying like, you know, we, we see that people want neighborhood schools, but here's why we don't want neighborhood schools, because we know that it will lead to segregation, because we know it will lead to unequal opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it also led us to find a newspaper article where um, there uh, the, the Human Relations Commission is quoted as coming to the, the board and saying about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. there was an issue we brought to the board that all of the black students were going to one elementary school. Now, we're again, the work's not done. Eliza's actually going to continue working with us as this project continues because we'll need to find that documentation. But we do know that they brought that issue up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was like a 1978 newspaper article, which means 10 years before would have been. 1968, uh, <laughs> which is a specific date that Ellie researched. It was? Okay, tell me. Yeah. Um, in 1968, there was a big land swap that went um, between Columbus and Worthington. That the had land swap. Yeah, I think a lot of people who, who, I think a lot of people in Worthington still don't understand mm -hmm. that they don't live in Worthington. Well, I thought I lived <laughs> in Worthington when I was a little kid, and I lived, yeah. <laughs> went to, Col lived in Columbus Two Dublin schools in my neighborhood went to Worthington School. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell me what the land swap was and what it meant and what, what 
what's what's going on yeah essentially like what glennon said i think we actually lost some of our school district but um i don't know essentially it was a big plan between columbus and worthington or yeah columbus and worthington where columbus would get some of our school district um and in return we got the anheuser-busch brewery which increased our proper or our income tax value by a significant amount and I don't know, it kind of, it like opens a lot of doors about, yeah, how huge the Worthington School District is compared to the actual city of Worthington, mm-hmm. and why we have so many students in the Worthington School District who don't live in Worthington. So when you say Columbus. what Columbus got and Worthington got, you're talking about... Yeah, what they traded. The, the, the folks who lived there actually became Columbus residents, or they became, no, you're what you're saying is yeah, the okay. folks who lived there... In Columbus became Worthington School District members. They actually, I think, were switched to the Columbus School District. So they were okay. previously part of the Worthington, the Worthington School, School District. District and then were moved over to the Columbus School Well, we District. also got some Columbus students who yeah, became Worthington students. So this was possible because of a 1955 state law okay. that was passed in response to the Brown v. Board ruling to desegregate schools. And so, so untangle that for me. So what you got to understand about Columbus first is that Columbus is relatively young as a city in Ohio. It's the youngest of the big cities. It was founded, selected as the state capital, right, for its central location. Like they almost chose Dublin, Franklinton wanted the job, but nobody. Did you know Worthington was in? Worthington was in. Yeah, Yeah. but Dublin was closer. I think it might (laughs) work from what I've read, but you know, but. To, you know, they, they wanted this central location. They didn't want to be in the flood zone of Franklinton either. They decided to go across the river essentially from Franklinton and found, found Columbus, but it was a chosen state capital. So it was really supposed to be like Springfield, Illinois, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows anything about Springfield, Illinois, <laughs> except for like maybe that it's like the capital of Illinois or like Lincoln, right? Or Simpsons, but like nobody knows anything because that's what Columbus was supposed to be. We were supposed to be Springfield, right? But because Columbus was young, and I got to look around, and they looked around, and they're like, man, look at Toledo and Cleveland. They are surrounded. All these suburbs have popped up, and they just surround, and they can't grow, right? And this was at a time when, you know, greenfield development was the way to go. Grow where it's cheap, grow out, sprawl, right? There wasn't as much pushback, you know, for all of the reasons we do against sprawling places. And so Columbus wanted to maintain avenues for annexation and so they did two things to make that possible one is they just they developed an aggressive annexation policy where they annexed whenever they could and they did this by number two tying it to their control over water and sewer they had a regional monopoly on water and sewer Um, the only other municipality in franklin county that does water or sewer is westerville they have waterworks everybody contracts with columbus for sewer and everybody but Westerville contracts with Columbus for water. And so Columbus leveraged that to say, you know, okay, at this, you know, we're going to offer them to existing municipalities, but you can't grow anymore if you still want water. We won't offer it to this place if you annex it, because we're going to annex that. So they essentially created growth boundaries by doing that. So that's why when you drive around, you're like, wait, I'm in Dublin. Wait, I'm well, in Worthington. Wait, I'm in Yes, Dublin. because wait, Columbus surrounded Upper Arlington, Grandview, Worthington, Whitehall, Bexley, and literally eight by annexing most of the black suburbs that we had along the east side. You know, 
that, that had become black suburbs, you know, or, you know, and they were also destroyed, some of them by highways, like Hanford Village, which was destroyed by the highway, and then annexed what was left, um, Linden Heights, all of these other places that were independent little villages and stuff at one point were annexed up and not offered those water and sewer contracts. So there's this, you know, who got water sewer contracts and who didn't and got annexed is another interesting thing to look at in terms of Columbus. So is that where your research came in? Well, she was looking at, so they, then there's 19, so there's that 1955 law that okay. I haven't even told you about yet that was passed in, <laughs> in response to the, the 1954 Brown v. Board, right? This law was a state of Ohio law, and it was for Columbus, and it decoupled school district transfers from municipal annexation. So prior to this law, every time a, a municipality um, annexed land, whatever they annexed went to their local school district. After that, they could annex land, and whatever they annexed could then say, oh, I'm going to this school district that's adjacent instead. So it, it separated those processes. That's why I lived as a child in Columbus. There were two Dublin schools in my neighborhood, but I went to Worthington schools. That's what enabled that. That created what we know of as the common areas. So you're saying it was, it was created in, in response to Direct Brown. response to Brown v. Board. It was the way that the state of Ohio enabled Columbus to get around Brown. Because it enabled the city of Columbus to capture white flight, right, at the expense of its urban district. Because I can... Right, so Columbus there. grew, mm -hmm. but the, the school district, the footprint of the school district is actually very similar to the 1936 <laughs> redlining map. It's very similar to that. It's not a lot bigger than that. Sorry, what were you going to say there? Just, they, they captured it because yeah. you could then uh, develop something in Columbus yes. if mm -hmm. it was within a suburban school district, mm -hmm. and it would be valuable to white people who were leaving Columbus knowing that desegregation was going to come. And it didn't come until 1979 for Columbus, mm -hmm. so there was a lot of time to build up a lot of those suburbs and develop in common areas, mm -hmm. which is why that 1968 land yes. swap was so important, because it created permanent boundaries. Yes, so most of that growth, most of that growth from 54 through the 60s was in Worthington. It was the north side where you had that decoupling happening. Worthington was growing so fast that they, they were struggling to keep up building buildings. So they approached Columbus and said, what will it take for permanent boundaries? And so there were these series of negotiations, which we, we, we pulled a bunch of stuff from, but I think Columbus has the real good stuff because the meetings were all Columbus. So I really want to get those meeting minutes because I've heard some interesting oral histories about what, why we ended up with what we ended up with. Yeah. But um, do you know the exact land that we swapped where they were? No. Okay. So it's like basically the southern part of what used to be the Worthington School District. Okay. And so this would be, um, do you know the Indian Hills neighborhood mm -hmm. over oh, off, of, off of Linworth? Mm -hmm. That neighborhood down to Bethel. That was, that was part of the Worthington School District. Mm -hmm. um, and then south of Worthington on the west side of High Street. Okay. So, like, those streets from, like, where whatever the last street of Worthington is, after Riverly, there's a little bit of Worthington there, yeah. all the way down to, like, Westview Avenue and possibly a little further because Westview Avenue has that, uh, that, that school. It was Homedale School. That was a Worthington school. Homedale oh. was a Worthington school at one point. Now I think it's, like, Worthington Christian or something on Westview Avenue, down by, like, the Pig Iron Yeah. as you get into Clintonville. Yep. That was all Worthington schools. All right, and in fact, Chaseland, the neighborhood right next to Colonial Hills, had been planned to be annexed in. Yeah, just south of Colonial Hills. Had been initially planned. It was developed with the intention of annexing it into Columbus or into Worthington, but 
Franklin County denied the annexation. Hmm. And so that's why we were longer on the west side. We were able to capture that growth through the the common, the, the 55 uh, law, the annexation law. Um, Worthington got that in the school district, but it, it wasn't part of the city proper. And then what we got for it was Anheuser-Busch Brewery. And so Anheuser-Busch Brewery is great because of property taxes, right? right? Not sending any kids to the schools, mm-hmm. but paying a bunch of property taxes. Mm-hmm. Now, what we gave Columbus was middle-class students, which is what they needed most of the time. I would say it was still unfair, though, with the amount of money we got compared to them in terms of windfall and taxes. We also did get a small pocket of the Devonshire neighborhood mm-hmm. um, over in Northland. So there's that pocket of Worthington schools that comes out of Northland. Yeah. That goes to Colonial Hills right now. Huh. Fascinating. So then what you researched was... That agreement yeah, that the, we the just agreement. Described. So you're kind of in the throes of that. You're... Yeah, it was a lot of like property tax values, but with a main focus on like school districts and how the trade mm-hmm. affected like school districts and yeah, what went on with students mm-hmm. and stuff. Did you guys know any of this stuff before? Did you know why we're people? You see signs mm-hmm. when you drive around <laughs> Dublin schools, Worthing Columbus taxes, things like that. No, not at all. No, no, but it was very interesting to learn about the history and learn about how it, things became that way. Mm-hmm. It's local history. I don't know. Like it gave me a new perspective on local history and how important it is to like know your immediate surroundings instead of just like the global or federal context of history. Yeah, that is very interesting too. Yeah, people. I think people really pay a lot of attention, right, to to what's going on in Congress and mm-hmm. what what your local school board is talking about and what your local sewer and water board is talking about, right? They're Mm going to determine a lot (laughs) about what happens to you and what happens to your neighborhood every day, huh? Well, and I think it's important to know local history because it can explain the way that things are. Mm -hmm. And especially if local history has kind of more sinister undertones, we live in a community where everyone's all buddy-buddy. We all, you know, we like each other. We're all happy. And we're all white. And so as somebody who is not white, I've kind of always noticed that I'm a like really big minority in Worthington, but I've never really asked why. And so I think understanding kind of more of the outside factors and the more of the kind of non-spoken things that occurred historically in Worthington that have led to it being the way that it is, it's just been really, um, I would say, rewarding to learn about. Yeah, it is. Is it rewarding? Does it make you? How do how, how do you reflect on going to school now? Well, I think as somebody, I'm the president of my school's diversity club, mm-hmm. and so as somebody who's trying their best as a student to kind of make other and unheard voices heard understanding why and they haven't been heard in the first place is kind of important for me and I think similarly with another side project that I've been working on I think identifying areas where Worthington has historically um, not done what they should have in terms of support for people of color I think is important 
because I think it's it's important for me as a leader to know what to advocate for. All right. The research that they did is not something that had been gathered in an accessible way before. Mm-hmm. Like the things that they put together, the write-ups they did, the documents that they synthesized now gives us a clearer like picture into Worthington's history. And so to like be able to do that, you know, the summer between your sophomore and junior year for Ellie or like going into your senior year for Elijah, um, they're leaving a massive impact that the ripples are going to be felt because the way this local history project works is that we want citizens, students, teachers to engage in this and they can pick up mm-hmm. where they left off. It's started now. And so they get to be the first group that, that was part of this project in the summer. You know, Kate at the Historical Society is like, we're, you know, we're going to archive these things. Mm-hmm. It's going to become part of Worthington history now. Mm-hmm. You know, it was already because it happened, right? But it doesn't become part of the story until it's gathered. It's not in focus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. They brought this stuff into focus. Mm-hmm. And if it's okay, I'm going to jump in yeah. and just point out how it can be really hard sometimes in the classroom setting to teach this process. You know, you have to have the time, you have to have um, the particular uh, curriculum giving you the space to do that sort of thing. And we sometimes can't do that. So having a different type of project Mm -hmm. where the students can pursue these topics and if they run into a hurdle, figure out how to get over that, around that, um, create a new path, you know, the historic methods process was really valuable for them. And, you know, understanding not only the searching for sources, but um, figuring out the value of certain sources, like Derek said, the synthesis, you know, that whole process is really valuable because it, it was so much more real. It was so much more authentic. You know, we like to say the, the experience, but that process is really valuable and it, it gave, it opened those doors. So we were very fortunate and from the educational standpoint to be able to, to pursue that and hopefully for future students to keep doing it. It's the time, right? Yeah. Because we're we're like, hey, listen, we gotta get on the next unit. You gotta get this assignment in so <laughs> yeah, that we can assess. Know. But <clears throat> I don't know. Just what did you guys think about growth in this process and like authentic learning compared to traditional like units and things like that? I think I learned so much. I remember the first time that I went to the Worthington Education Center and I just flipped through those books with the, like, old people minutes, <laughs> like, <laughs> over and over and over. Should I, wait, should I just say that? And, and no. No, that was it. That's that was it. We're hoping that that's something. Yeah. Okay, I was like, wait, was that something, like, I should No, say? I just like yeah. that it happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think in doing that, I had no clue what I was doing. Like, I was able to recognize, like, okay, this might be something important. This might be something important. Like, or certain words would stick out. But, like, I didn't really know how that would fit into the bigger picture. But then I went to Glennon, who is this, like, supercomputer of, like, <laughs> research historical knowledge. And so she was able to help me put those together and kind of understand like, okay, well, that word sticks out, but in this context, what about, like, this other thing that I know about that you haven't even heard of? Like, it, it was just, 
I think that experience of gathering the pieces and then having that assistance to put them together was really beneficial for me learning wise. So I feel like that definitely the support helped me grow a lot. That's right. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I think it's awesome like to be able to look at the project and be like, we got out of this like a huge, like a wealth of knowledge about local history and like some objective things that we learned, mm-hmm. but then also to reflect on it and be like, now I kind of know what it's like to be a researcher. Even if I, you know, yeah. had a lot of support along the way, like it kind of gives insight onto like what that process looks like in a way that I've never experienced before. It was exciting to watch the students, you know, discover a, a new photograph, you know, or, oh, look at this map, you know, the color coding maps and just trying to, to figure things out and not even knowing exactly where they were going to go. But being able to take that risk and not be too concerned about what is on the other side of it. You know, it's not grade driven. Get an a. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah. you know, learning happens in so many other ways that we want to support, but we run into those barriers. It's hard. It's, sometimes it's hard to do that. Yeah. So. The, um, the, the idea of like learning what it means to be a researcher. Because yeah. um, what we noticed is like, you know, at the beginning, we'd have our interrogation sessions <laughs> and it was just quiet. Pretty like, We call them interrogation sessions because they're interrogating each other's research okay to find so out like, about when, they, when they, we would meet once a week yeah. they didn't they didn't put us in like a dungeon everybody gets thrown off by what we call we might have to change that that was totally my fault i'm not good at naming things i'll just be honest about it like people are what you know we get there and you probably remember you might not have been at the first one like you were yes and it was just quiet because we're, they were still just kind of like, you know, fumbling their way through, figuring out what they wanted to research, mm-hmm. what they were going to look for. And by the end, you know, we're sitting at the only computer in the Worthington Library with Adobe Photoshop. And, and they've pieced together all of these things in a very coherent story. Five you, people leaning over each other. Yeah, we were all, yeah. We were all trying to get on the flash drive. And, then, and like it, it was right at the end too, before it closed, and so there was like <laughs> it was counting down on the top of the screen <laughs> for the time, and we were just like hoping. Well, like the load bar was, was like progressing slowly. Really. And so we learned things too, right? That that we probably want to give some support in terms of like InDesign, photo, like these Adobe products yeah. that. Even though, like, Elijah knows what he's doing, we only had access to one computer in the Worthington Library. So I end up, my wife is a graphic designer, and I was like, hey, if you're not using your computer tonight, (laughs) can I get on there and and do some things? But yeah, and and aside from, like... It turned out well, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. We even reprinted, because the first one that we sent was pixelated, so that one was up there for a little while, and we just got the new one in today. It's just... it's. And we tonight. took all of your right, yeah, like four o'clock today. I took all we took all of your write ups and made them pop outs like the other ones, so it matches better, and that's really cool. So we're talking now Lots about the actual exhibit itself. Yes, at the yes. library. Yes, it's up. showing off yeah. some of this, some of this interim research that we're. Yeah. That, and that's where I was going. Is like you can see the showcase now, yeah. and it's yeah. beautiful. Um, the write ups are great, uh, and it started mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. people showing up. For training, like for three hours, <laughs> finding their own topics, getting better at this, sitting at the library at the end, waiting for maybe it would save before the computer shut down. 
Um, and Finding comfort in interviewing other people, you mm-hmm. know, reaching out yeah. and practicing and hopefully pursuing more oral history. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been great. Yeah. The, the, the tentacles of impact of this project reach out far, but, you know, we have a really pretty panel that you can come check out. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have an event to showcase um, their work on October 1st. From October 1st. 2, 2 to 3.30 at the library. And so okay. what we'll do is we'll start with just a, some opening remarks and then do some tours every 30 minutes. Like, I'll do a guided tour each 30 minutes so people can go to the exhibit and get a walkthrough and ask questions and stuff. And um, we'll have, you know, if the kids will be, um, we'll have some of the kids in the conference room at the library or meeting room, whatever they call it. Erase the space, they'll have information. The, we'll have some information about what we're doing with the school district moving forward. Um, the CRC will have some information. Hopefully we'll be able to sign people up at that event to do a community training. If you're a community member and you want to do this research, we're going to offer, we're going to plan our first training probably for the end of October or oh, early wow. November. To, to start dig, digging in on this research. Yes. To yep. build off and, of what they started. And yeah. hopefully um, there's a group working on racial healing circles in Worthington, so I'm hoping they'll have some racial healing circles planned that folks could sign up for as well. So we'll have that kind of information at the event okay on the first and then the community relations commission is also um so october 11th is the columbus foundation's big table conversation mm-hmm. day and so we are holding two big table conversations at the library focused around undesigned the red line we're um, framing it as uh, reactions and actions kind of like giving people space to process and react to um, the exhibit and then think about well in light of this information what actions should a community like worthington be thinking about and those will be uh, from 11 to 12.30 with a tour one hour before. So mm-hmm. you can come at 10 for the tour, or you can come or the guided tour of the exhibit, or you can just come at 11 for the conversation, or either or. And then the, the, we'll have one in the evening at, from 7 to 8.30 with the tour at 6. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So for posterity, um, where's this stuff going to live if people listen to this podcast November 10th? Otterbein. Otterbein. So it's gonna move. It's gonna to move to Westerville. The undesigned the red line exhibit will. Okay. And Westerville students will have a panel that is right. um, similar to what the Worthington students created mm-hmm. in terms of the panels that are Worthington specific. As far as I know, the library is probably gonna have access to those, or the historical society, or possibly the district for the one the kids made. We're not <laughs> sure yet. So they we're going to save them. They will yes. not be destroyed. Okay. They will be saved. And it is wherever they can most easily be saved. And it might be that they go to the historical society because Kate keeps things like that. <laughs> I That's what Kate. they do. Yeah, yeah. Kate yeah. yeah. <laughs> you hear that, Kate? <laughs> and voluntold. Well, and I'm sure Kate will talk about this, but there was a student that was working on this mm-hmm. and was following a pathway, and then it just kind of was like, I don't know where to go from this. And so they got to go and work with Kate and start doing some things that she needed done, which was plotting out where African-Americans lived in Worthington um, based on census data. And so Nellie got to go and essentially work with the Historical Society as part of her project when, you know, their research process reached a point where, uh, you know, they emailed me and, I, and was like, I don't know what I can do. And I want to mm-hmm. be a part of this still and I want to mm-hmm. contribute. So we were like, well, you know, check out working with Kate and it worked out really well because now, yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a resource they don't get very often no and the historical society can always use volunteers you know mm-hmm. so young people should think about that yes. and in terms of permanent housing you can look up anything on the web is this stuff gonna be out there for people to read to see other than going 
to in person the historical society most likely i mean worthington the library has worthington memory which is a digital mm-hmm. archive and so you know i'll talk to meredith and see if we can get the because i'd like their panel and the student panel to be saved in worthington memory gotcha. if possible but we also you know part of our bigger project that that the Kerwood institute is involved in is you know one of our goals was to create story maps for each community so they could also be housed digitally within some other kind of platform mm-hmm. that we create. Oh, that's great. And Erase the Space, how, where can we go to find out more about that? Uh, Erasethespace.org. Excellent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you can find links to our social media on there, um, but most of our stuff is housed on the website. Yeah. So that was our sit down. That is a great backgrounder on the history of redlining and the impact of segregation and institutional racism and a kind of applied primer on how it was an element affecting the growth and development of Worthington. Go check out the Undesigned the Red Line exhibit at the Old Worthington Library throughout October and I hope you can make it to one of their events. I'll post those at worthingtonstories.com along with some more background because there's a lot more great history out there. There's a pocket tour produced by the Worthington Historical Society dedicated to African-American history in Worthington. There's a great deal of family history actually at the Historical Society too. There's a lot of info to dig in on the Undesigned the Redline project. So much more to look into. And Glennon and Derek want you to know this is not just a history project. There's a community movement dedicated to undoing past injustices underway right here in Worthington too. So don't forget to look up Erase the Space, go to the Undesigned Workshop, check out the Worthington Community Relations Commission. There's lots we can do. I want to thank Glennon, Derek, Roseanne, Ellie, and Elijah for coming together on 24 hours notice so I could get this episode out to you before their October 1 event. Also, thanks to Meredith Southard, Worthington Library's historian, and to Kate Lalonde endlessly for her help on this and other upcoming episodes. More thanks are owed to Eric Nesda for his always generous permission to use his tune North of 50 as the soundtrack to this podcast. You should check out his work at Gnezda, that's G-N-E-Z-D-A, And of course, you should keep an ear out for him on an upcoming episode about the musicians of Worthington. And finally, thanks very much to the City of Worthington and the Community Relations Commission, not only for bringing Undesigned the Red Line to Worthington, but also for their generous seed grant to help me get this podcast started. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find more supplemental material at worthingtonstories.com as soon as I can get it up there. Okay, I am wrapping this one up. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, send me feedback through the website, and stay tuned for more episodes of Worthington Stories.